So Scott, I'm excited to have you back on the podcast. Uh, you're one of the strangely the many Scots <laughs> that I've been close with over the years. And it's a pleasure having you back to talk about this meaty topic of what is the right thing to do. Yeah, thanks so much, Scott. It's really always a pleasure to join you in conversation here. And um, uh, two Scots are, you know, maybe better than one. We'll find out. (laughs) (laughs) Been an unending joke for my many Scott friends over the years. So today, the essence of this episode is for you and I to talk about what right and wrong mean from a Buddhist perspective. Buddhism can be very abstract and that can be appealing to certain type of person. But to make this real, I wanted to ground it in our lives. And in particular, I was trying to think of moments when, you know, you and I face a very serious decision of what's the right thing to do and all the different voices that come up in our heads, you know, once we were Buddhists, like how that manifests. And you and I talked about this a little bit before, but the two things that came up for me was when I got divorced. I was, I'm married now happily, but I was married once before and I got divorced in the scope of these, you know, different ethical frames. Because at first, you know, I was married and the marriage was, there was a lot of conflict and problems and, you know, maybe it didn't seem like we were the best match after a while, but I took a vow, you know, I had a vow for a whole life, lifetime vow to honor, cherish, you know, stand by this person. And I took that really seriously. And also I had divorced parents. So I had, I had made a vow to myself even before I got married, like, I'm never going to do what my parents did. I'm never going to get divorced like that. Did you go through anything similar, you know, as you were confronting that question of whether to remain a monk? Yeah, definitely. I mean, and it it wasn't, for me, it wasn't that dissimilar to a marriage, you know, it just wasn't, there wasn't another person involved. It was just like a set of vows and a lifestyle. And I started to question like, oh, is this going to be something I can sustain and or want to sustain? Because I think for me in particular, the issue was more isolation. And I think I've talked about this on your podcast before. Just, you know, not I, I, I wasn't advised to go into a monastery. I was advised to do more retreat and, um, and which is fine. Uh, but it, it also left me kind of isolated without community. And I think if we're not having lovers and partners, And we don't also have community. It's sort of like there's just a point where our humanity, you can't do it anymore, which I think is kind of natural, you know? You were lonely. I was lonely. It just sort of was like, I know this is a a right life to have. Like, I had no doubt that being a monk was good. It just was like more, okay, I don't know if I can sustain this anymore and be a healthy human being. That was more where the decision came from. from. Yeah, you know, I think... um... It, it's similar because as long as I was thinking, okay, well, even though this isn't pleasant for me, maybe it's the right thing. Maybe it's something I have to kind of grind through or learn through. Um, but it was only when I kind of got transitioned into thinking whether it was the best thing for my wife that things started to open up again a couple years later. And this was through talking to teachers. You know, I asked Geshe Dakfa. I asked, whenever I asked Keshi Dafa a question, though, he, he never had an answer. He just said, like, it doesn't matter, actually. <laughs> that was his answer to almost every worldly thing I asked him, which I think kind of makes sense to a more realized person. But when I asked Venerable Sangye Kadro, you know, she said, well, yeah, you have to look very closely and see what's the benefit for her 
and for you and what's the harm. And if you've really reflected for a long time and found that is more harmful than beneficial, then for her sake, as well as yours, it would make sense. And, you know, that's, it's quite bold of her. I love Venerable Sangha Kadro because she's really, she'll always go very deep. And typically you wouldn't have someone, even your friends or certainly not a Buddhist monk or nun saying, get divorced. But, you know, she's, I think through the wisdom of someone who's studied Buddhism for a long time, you're willing to go there. So for me, that was kind of the door opening when I started to think not just about myself, which is important, I'm important, but also about her, what was the best thing for her. Um, I don't know if there was a similar cascade for you as you went through thinking I mean, I about- I really relate to that in my, my partnerships. We sound similar in a certain way because I have always this doubt of like, am I just following my attachment, right? With anything. And so I take a long time to make sure it's not just that, you know? And so, um, so I, I, I sought a lot of advice over the year, year and a half. And, um, you know, I think one of my main teachers, if I could, if I would have seen, I couldn't see his advice completely, but I think his advice mostly was just like, just hang on, just like, wait. He said, if you do what you need to do, was his advice. Like he wasn't pressuring me in any way, but he was kind of like, just wait. And I really see the wisdom in that now, because if I could have hung on for, you know, three, four, five more years, you know, I don't know, I'm a different person now. But, you know, I'm also a different person now because I didn't keep, I, I decided to give back the vows. You know, one of my heroes, who's not a Buddhist, but is very Buddhist sympathetic, is Stuart Brandt. He created the Whole Earth Catalog a long time ago. And he's, what he says is, um, he's a big proponent of long-term thinking. And one thing he said that stuck with me, I heard before I became a Buddhist, he said, good things happen slowly, bad things happen fast. <laughs> <laughs> so I think one thing we're we're both already saying is just, to slow down big decisions, you know, to slow down critical decisions, which I think for you and you and I, these both took a few years. But the thing I wanted to ask you is um, about, there, there was a moment for me when, when the decision finally kind of collapsed into a certainty. And I'll tell you how this yeah. manifests for me, is there was a moment where a fight could have started with my ex-wife. I remember, you know, she kind of turned to me and she started saying like, you this, you that, you that, blah, blah, blah. And I had this extraordinary moment where I just thought, I'm not anything. <laughs> it's like, like it does, it's meaningless. Like, like what she's saying, it's just, there's no basis. To, I mean, there's some conventional basis to it, but there's no, there's nothing for me to get angry about. Like, it's a way that she's seeing things. It's not necessarily true or false. It's, it's relative from her perspective. It was like, it, and it wasn't like I was just dismissing or ignoring what she was saying. Like there's some truth to what she's saying. But in the greater sense, it's just like, wait, reality is much more flexible than this. And I don't have to respond. I don't, I don't have to push back. And, you know, I just kind of, I didn't react. I think it was one of the first times I didn't react. And then, and then that was the gateway out because once I was not angry, like making a decision under the control of anger, I think is almost universally unhelpful. It's just, it doesn't lead you to make good decisions. So that kind of dissolved the anger, finally, dissolved the conflicts. Like it had no more arguments or conflicts with her after that. And then I was able to think more clearly 
again, what is beneficial, what's harmful through therapy, through this, through that. Um, and, you know, eventually did decide to get divorced, but it was a bit more harmonious. You know, we went through therapies and discussions and yeah, there were some conflicts, but it was relatively like harmonious as much as things like that can be. Did, I wonder if you faced any other, uh, a gateway like that with, you know, relativity, emptiness, interdependence. Yeah. I mean, I love it. I just love what you just shared. Um, for me, it was maybe a little more simplistic at the time, which just with the example I'm using today of, of returning my monastic vows. It was more yeah. just like, you know, I, I finally, when I pressed my main teacher more, one of my main teachers, he was just sort of like, you know, do what you want to do, you know, do what you do what you need to do. So yeah, for me, it was just like this relief, this certainty, like I'm not perfect. I don't have to be a perfect monk. I don't have to be a perfect practitioner. I don't have to be a perfect person, uh, but I definitely want to keep practicing the Dharma. And I, I just want to do that in a, with a different lifestyle right now, you know? Yeah, I like what you're saying, because I had, <laughs> I did also have a similar, I think a lot of what was holding me back was this idea that I was a failure if I ended the relationship, you know, that I failed in marriage, failed in relationships, failed as a husband. Um, and it was that kind of, opening up to, again, through that, like relativity, interdependence, like, well, I'm not a failure or a success. <laughs> like, I'm not, it's just, this is the thing that's happening. <laughs> yeah. And to try to be skillful and to live a, live as compassionate life as you can and do, do the right thing as, as right of a thing as I could for each of us in the relationship, um, harming the least benefiting the most, um, with uncertainty, you know, no, knowing that I, I don't know for sure what's the best decision, but that, you know, we do need to make one and, you know, fighting with someone every day is not a, a healthy way to live your life. I've been there. <laughs> I've been yeah. There. It's no fun. <laughs> one of the things that surprised me the most, um, when I first started studying Buddhism is I saw the Dalai Lama many, many times. And a few times people asked the Dalai Lama how to end war which kind of starts to segue into our next topic. Um, and I heard him several times. He gave the same answer, which is make up with the people you have conflicts with in your own life. He said, that will be the greatest cause for peace. And um, I don't think that would make intuitive sense to everybody. It didn't to me at the time, although it was very powerful, but it, but it, it breaks through the idea that there's this separate, that there's a war outside there. And then there's just me. No, everything is made of individual people making individual decisions. And, and even our individual decisions, you know, here in a country far away do affect conflicts in the Middle East and uh, Eastern Europe and, and so on. Um, yeah, nothing it, happens in a box. And I, and I, I think this is the beauty of interdependence as a teaching in Buddhism and practices that help us to access that. Cause then we can, we can start to ask more questions than have answers. Like to me, what's so beautiful in his holiness's expression there is it, it, it's, it's kind of a, it's not quite a question, but it's a prompt. Yeah. I mean, what about this con? Why don't we, you know, as compassionately as possible, why don't we wade into this uh, extremely painful, extremely divisive, conflict in the Middle East right now. It's worth, in today's world too, it's, it's probably important for us to acknowledge our own, you know, identities in the current language. You know, I come from a Jewish family, the, um, but 
we were not practicing Jews. I was raised Christian and then became a became a Buddhist. I've been to Israel. I have you know relatives who died in the Holocaust and things like that. Um, yeah, and, and yeah, I grew up. You know, I had a bar mitzvah. <laughs> yeah. I went to Israel, you know, similar to you, and and uh, you know, I have a complex identity with with being Jewish, and it's something that that I'm. I'm always questioning and asking new questions about, you know? Um, so yeah, I'd love to jump into that. And yeah. And I think it's, we probably have some unique perspectives because of that. Yeah. I find that when I've, as this topic has come up with, you know, different people on different sides of the debate over the last couple of months, usually what I start with, and it's funny how shocked people are <laughs> with the idea of nonviolence, you know, it's so fundamental to the Buddhist worldview that you start with nonviolence. Like if nothing else, <laughs> the very beginning is just nonviolence to not harm. You know, I, I see it more, and this isn't to contradict, I think it's just an interesting conversation we can have. I see Buddhist ethics more built in the foundation of non-harm, yeah. which has a little bit of a broader context. Because yeah, even broader than nonviolence. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, like, like violence can be interpreted actually. So, um, the example, my teacher, Van Rene, you know, when he was talking about this, he said, here's a good way to think about when to use violence and how to use it. He said, imagine if anybody is trying to attack you or commit violence against you, think of them as your mother. Like, what if your mother came at you with a knife <laughs> and you had a gun in your hand? What are you going to do? Are you going to shoot your mom? No, you're going to put down the gun. You're going to tackle her. You're likely going to sustain some pretty serious injuries, but you realize that she's acting under some powerful delusion and she needs to be subdued and prevented from being violent and also to, to preserve your own life, but equally, like equally yeah. having equal concern for preserving her life and safety as well as your own and then finding some you know overarching bigger solution to a problem that seems more rooted in mental delusion, you know, than a strong sense of enemy or friend. Um, yeah. Reflect on that a, a little bit, if you don't mind. Like, what do you, how, how do yeah, you think this, th this bears on the, this current conflict? I think what you just said about enemy and friend, that was the thing that kind of sparked me the most because yeah. that is the thing that, you know, these, these binaries we create around our fixed ideas based on our reactive uh, destructive emotions, you know, to me that, that is violent, you know, like that is, that is yeah. harm, right? Yeah. So like when we get to the essence, a little bit more of what harm is, you know, this is where I, I kind of was reflecting on what you shared from, from His Holiness Dalai Lama, that, you know, harm is something that starts in our own minds, starts in our own emotions. And then, and then eventually we act with our body and speech uh, based on that, if we don't work with it in a healthy way. So looking at it that way, I think it kind of gets into looking at harm um, in a more, obviously a more inner way. And then of course, like, I mean, you know, adding to our conversation, it's like, as you know, cause you've been to Israel and, and you, you grew up Jewish as well. Um, the, the worldviews at play in the Middle East are not the same worldviews at play <laughs> for the, for people who grew up in the United States. So even as like a, a you know, Growing up reformed Judaism, but but I was born in the United States. I was, you know, fed and or, you know, educated in a different form of what Israel-Palestinian conflict, Israel-Middle East, all that meant versus what it actually means. And and I think 
And I think if that's not taken into account, how are we ever going to figure out, you know, what has less harm? Because we're not taking, you know, we're not taking our own worldview into account. And even that is already very compassionate, right? Because compassion starts with empathy and acknowledging that there are different points of view. And to even see that, like, once you're there, you're already halfway toward a solution, right? Like if you're um, a very, very wounded uh, Israeli person, and yet you can still see the level of wound and pain of the Palestinians, um, being bombed, having their children die in, in ways that, you know, is, Israelis had their children die. That's the, that's the path toward compassion and toward resolving a conflict. Even the Buddha said, right, only hatred comes from hatred that the, it's so easy to say it. And, and hopefully it doesn't sound trite, but that the only solution to problems grounded in hatred is love is actually to have, and to start with <laughs> the basis of love is even to care at all. <laughs> like, yeah. And the basis of caring at all is even to think about another person's point of view. <clears throat> and it's so hard for people to hear that. And there's even, you know, there's very strong political movements on, you know, the extremes of both left and right perspective, where they really don't want to consider the other person's perspective. They say, you know, doing so limits your ability to be effective as an activist. And that is a little bit at odds with the Buddhist worldview, which is that, no, it, the roots of resolving conflict, peace, safety, security, human rights are in acknowledging the fundamental human rights and needs for safety, security, um, food, shelter, love, compassion that all people yeah. have, right? Totally. I mean, it gets back to if we're not able to enter some kind of process of developing that personally, and then of course, communally, all we're left with is, is right and wrong. And then all we're left with is choosing a side of who we think is right or wrong based on yeah. our personal lenses and habit patterns. So it's very limiting. And I think in a way I have hope that I think there's a decent amount of us who are pretty sick of this, you know, we're, yeah. well, we're sick of war and we're sick of violence and we're sick of, you know, seeing suffering, but we're also sick of like people trying to force us into binaries all the time, you know? And so, um, to me, Buddhism is not the only thing, but, but Buddhism does offer us a way out because it offer, offers us the freedom of opening to a way to look at interdependence and relationships and to ask more questions than to have more answers, which as you said, can open into empathy. I can understand both sides positions, you know, in the Israel Palestinian conflict over over many years i i see both sides of it um and you know for some reason like that's not people aren't satisfied with it if you see both sides then you you're choosing either apathy in, in some people's eyes or you're choosing um to to sort of how do you say it, diminish the side that they thinks is suffering more right yeah so it's a I really mean, tricky one. well one of the strongest Again, you know, this Buddhism, this, this deepest principle of Buddhism of, of emptiness, interdependence is about transcending dualities. And there, there couldn't be a bigger duality than choosing a side in a war, <laughs> right? That one side's right and the other side's wrong. Um, you know, the, the side, the side you would take, uh, my understanding uh, and, and, you know, my own perspective of a Buddhist interpretation is the side you take is the side of humanity, you know, the, the side of human beings that every, every human being has a right to life 
has a right to safety, security, property also, you know, in our culture to, to, to feel safe, secure, to have the things that, that make their life flourish in our, in our current society. Um, that's the side, <laughs> that's the side we're on is that the side of humanity and the side of peace. It's, it's sad how, you know, that it was one of the nice things about the sixties. There, there are problems about it too, but the idea that peace was such a value, um, we don't hear that as much. And it is to be on the side of peace. I think nobody doesn't want peace. We live in peace. It's very nice to be able to walk down the street and not worry about being killed or bombed. It gives your life, you know, so much sense of safety, meaning security. You know, I think that's, that's the context in which our world exists today is that people want a feeling of a nation, that they live in a nation that has secure borders and that they can live within safely. Um, so to acknowledge like that's at the root of this anger is, is some kind of need. And again, the kind of obvious one in this case, a need for safety, security, um, health, uh, nonviolence. Yeah. And, it, yeah, and it's, I, yeah. And you're just naming this basic one of like this need for safety, which is, you know, that's become more, you know, I, I don't want to comment on you, but you know, I grew up mm -hmm. in the Bay area, San Francisco Bay area. You know, in a fairly privileged upbringing, I had my fair shakes of ups and downs, but in fairly privileged in the sense that, you know, now I live in Latin America for the last three years and in my wife and other friends and things like that. They don't, Latin America is not as dangerous as people think it is. I will say that it depends where you are. It depends, you know, who you are and how sometimes, unfortunately, how much money you have. But, um, but what I do notice is embedded in my wife and, and others I talk to is a real concern about like the basic safety you were talking about, you know, yeah. be able to walk down the street, you know, not get into some physical altercation or, you know, someone's going to take something from you or, you know, there's an internal war happening or something like that. And so, um, you know, that culturally wasn't something I grew up with. So it's very now having to like, listen to others and see and, and respond to their concerns that are different than mine. It's sort of like, it, it makes me think, it makes me think about even safety as an idea. And, and I mean, we can define safety on these basic levels, which I think a lot of people would agree with like physical safety, things like that. And then I think there's like, it just made me think about how we frame safety as an individual too. Meaning like, you know, I don't want to comment on anyone in particular, but I have noticed that sometimes having the, the trauma of growing up in un, unsafe environments creates a situation where those can appear when maybe there's not necessarily that safety concern. I've seen that happen to people I know. And, you know, where I'm this kind of hapless, you know, <laughs> gringo, like, you know, I don't think about it that much, you know, unless I'm in certain cities that I know I have to be more careful. But, you know, I don't think about it that much, which is maybe not so healthy because maybe I should be more concerned with it. And it's a little bit of a, you know, uh, privilege to be able to to have that take. But anyways, I was just reflecting on this. My question here is like, where's that barrier between actual safety like that is just foundational for us human beings. And and like we're actually we're part of our concern about safety is actually more cognitive and emotional, you know, and because and, and, I, I see that, that being blurred a little bit, you know? Yeah, it, it is tricky. And also, um, you know, coming from a place of progressive privilege, I live in Berkeley, California now. <laughs> yeah. um, 
it's, but I was lucky enough, you know, my first wife actually was from Memphis, Tennessee. So, oh. you know, I spent a lot of time there where there's much more like strong racism and division between races and classes. Um, and also, you know, much more dangerous areas of the city. Um, and I started to see, I think it's really important to, again, through like empathy and compassion to understand whenever people say, you know, in these political divides, one of the saddest things I think, uh, but understandable things I hear people say is I don't understand. I don't understand how, how that person could vote for that person or how that person could have this perspective on the conflict or how they could go to that protest or whatever. And that fundamentally, from a Buddhist perspective, like I find if I say that to myself, I don't understand. That's an invitation to understand <laughs> that you really want to, because it is understandable. Like everybody's actions make sense to them from the cause and effect, you know, from their birth, their culture, their politics and so on. So like this one about safety, I think is a great one because it's quite easy in Berkeley, California to be unarmed and to, to let, you know, my 12 year old daughter roam freely around and for me to walk around safely but for a person, for example, living in a, a very dangerous neighborhood in Los Angeles, you know, that that person might want to have a gun in their home is understandable. I'm, and, and go away from statistics and so on and things like that, because there, there may be good reasons not to do that. But, it's, but from a psychological perspective, it makes absolute sense. You want to defend your family. You want to feel safe. You've already experienced violence and crimes and so on right there in your home and in your neighborhood. Same thing with someone living in like a rural, you know, say a more right wing person living in rural Mississippi or Texas or something like that. You know, you're, you're isolated there with a lot of space around you and you want to, same thing, you want to protect your family, you want to protect your home. Like it makes sense to that person too, you know, to be armed or that to feel safe. And, and they may have faced real conflicts in their life. It's not just imagined. They faced, you know, real situations where someone else was armed and they were forced to do something or, or back away. So I think, and you can, you can, you know, extend that to the very difficult mental exercise of trying to understand the most extreme perspectives, like in this Israeli Palestinian conflict. Cause of course it's not every Israeli, it's not every person in Gaza and the West bank you know, who has these perspective, it's more the most extreme factions, like the Israeli government, had a very quite extreme, you know, right wing perspective, and then like the Hamas, like a very extreme, violent perspective. Um, but to do that exercise, if you're ready to actually try to see the cause and effect, not that what they're doing is quote, right, or, or, or beneficial, but just that there's a logic to why they are acting that way. And, um, and there's a reason to do that too, right? Because there is a logic to why these people are doing very extreme, very violent, harmful things on both sides. There's a logic to, you know, a person, say, they, say the person in, in Gaza who they were a child whose parents were killed in a bombing and so on, and then they got radicalized. Like you can, you can see, if, if you think through it and you do a little bit of reading and research, you can see how people get radicalized on both sides of... Uh, of a conflict. Um, and then the, the Buddhist perspective is that that's not just out of the goodness of your heart that you do that mental exercise of trying, if you're going to, to fight for peace and justice and human rights, you really need to understand, 
you know, and you need to understand the person you're in conflict with, you'll actually be better at resolving that conflict if you understand the other side. <laughs> Sorry to go on and on and on about that. No, but. no, I think thinking globally and opening our minds is great. But if we don't act local, locally, it's not good, you know, meaning like <laughs> there's very little I actually can do to change the situation in, you know, be, between the conflict of Palestinians and Israelis. I'm not saying there's nothing. There are things, obviously, through our political system, et cetera, in the United States we can do because obviously we didn't talk about it. The United States is a pretty major player in very the big force. Yeah. For as long as I've been alive and more. But I think, you know, we're forgetting that like so what what's happening is like we're we're almost losing our agency because we're not exerting um efficacy or or agency where we actually have it yeah you know i mean which is locally it, yeah meaning locally i mean like as locals just our families but it's also hard to have hope like it does feel really really hopeless with this kind of conflict and um you know something that's helped me is again like this sense of con like you're saying this sense of context you know we were uh at war with Germany, you know, in the 1940s, they were our arch enemy, Japan also, right? Now these are two of our closest allies. Like this is interdependence, right? This is, this is change and interdependence and fluidity, like a starting point to even feel like you can be the tiniest bit effective is to see that things have already changed a lot, even over the course of our lifetimes and our parents' lifetimes. You know, Germany is one of our closest allies. They were absolutely our arch enemy. We each killed millions of each other's people, like just like this other conflict. Same thing with Japan. Japan was willing to have the very last Japanese person die in order to fight the United States, in order to lose to the United States even, like that level of commitment to the war. And we are now you know, the closest of allies. I, I don't want to put out there some kind of religious idea. I just want to say it because I think it's useful is, um, you know, Buddhism doesn't have the idea that the world, that there's like a better world. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it, it doesn't have that premise that somehow we're going to fix the world, you know? It, it has the premise based on what we've already been talking about and to make it very practical and relatable, that as long as one or two or three individuals or more are beholden or controlled by their afflictive emotions, that suffering and violence is going to ensue, right? So it has that, that's the premise. And so I think to me, that's kind of revolutionary because it changes how we work with ourselves. It changes how we think of conflict and how we seek to resolve it, right? Kind of back to His Holiness's advice and what we've been threading throughout this of like really coming back to responsibility for our own thoughts and emotions in understanding that they're not as real as they appear, first of all, and that they're quite harmful if we, if we don't work with them, you know? So I, I just wanted to say that, that I think, you know, this is a tricky one. And, I, and I'm not saying anybody has to believe that or, or you or anyone, but I, you know, through a lot of reflection, I have that conviction now that, that I, I don't think the world is fixable. Uh, but, <laughs> and this could go into the Vajrayana view a little bit, but the world is also not fixable because there's nothing to fix. <laughs> and this is a very, can be a very controversial idea in Buddhism, actually, and can be a very challenging idea. It needs to be also filled in by teachings in Vajrayana Buddhism that I'm not going to give here, obviously. 
one way of looking at Vajrayana is is just looking at how things could be, looking that, you know, our nature is fundamentally good and trying to see what the world would look like if we realize that, <laughs> right? And so in Vajrayana, you know, there are, there are aspects of Vajrayana that are secret and aspects that are open to everybody, at least in our tradition. I led a war meditation for the podcast, I don't know, about a month ago. You know, in a Vajrayana, you, you find a lightness, like, so you find a real lightness in yourself and you imagine that you travel there to the Middle East and look down and really see the suffering on both sides and then imagine it different. You know, that imagine giving those people safe homes, security, all the resources they need, the security of, of knowing their whole life they're going to be safe and their family, their loved ones, their friends, for anyone who's lost people in the conflict, giving them the ability to eventually get over that and heal from that pain. Like even saying it right now, it actually feels quite good, <laughs> you know? And, and that's the thing is like, you need to be for, you can't just be against something. You need to be for something. And also it's not just abstract. You can't just say I'm for peace. That's not powerful. From the Vajrayana perspective, you really need to picture it. And it's not saying that this is some airy fairy magic that my thinking is going to solve this conflict, but it warms your own heart and it makes your own actions become genuine causes or more closely, you know, toward genuine causes for peace. And also just practically, I think people are in anguish in the United States and everywhere else, people listening right now. So it also just helps you get past that anguish to, you know, just feeling okay. And that, you know, there is at least picturing a solution is is the first step <laughs> towards having one. And I think a lot of people don't do that. We're focused in, in the conflict, but picturing what a solution looks like is the absolute important step on the way towards having one. And I think a lot of people don't do that. We're focused in, in the conflict, but picturing what a solution looks like is the absolute important step on the way towards having one. But yeah, tell me more about you know your perspective on the, the Vajrayana and, and this conflict. Yeah, I mean, it's a deep, I mean, there's a lot to say, so I'm just, just it's very superficial what I'm yeah. saying, but we we imagine this world and ourselves and others as as a pure Buddha field. And we, and again, like you said, it's not for the sake of ignoring suffering and just magical thinking. That's not the point. The point is actually to open our minds to another possibility in reality, which I found to actually do the opposite of magical thinking. I found it to to help me to be more more engaged, more more practical, more connected with others. Exactly, just something to help us loosen and soften and stay open and connected to the people around us. Um, yeah. You 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 kindly agreed to lead a meditation that would bear on these issues of. Um, what's the right thing to do and conflict and the other. Can you just talk a little bit about what that meditation is and it'll air as the next episode after this interview? Sure. Um, so yeah, I was thinking we could meditate a little bit on um, an equanimity practice. Mm -hmm. And the reason this came to mind is because I, you know, I find we, we can, we can access a lot of loving kindness meditations and compassion meditations out there in, in very secular and spiritual forms. But often, um, if in my case, if I'm not meditating on an equanimity, if I'm not having some connection to that, the, the love and compassion can still be biased. There can be some sense of like, 
one person or one group being being more important than another. And I think based on our conversation, you know, in, in different conflicts, you know, in particular the Israel-Palestinian conflict right now, um, equanimity is so needed, you know, because I think then then proper action can come from that, right? And again, we're not defining what that action is necessarily today, but I, I think there's some prep work to do before that. And so equanimity is part of that. Yeah, that sounds great because it's one thing I think everybody listening would probably say they believe in universal human rights, but it's one thing to say it, another to feel it. And that's what this, that meditation can really do. So great. Well, I'm looking forward to doing, I'll do the meditation with you right now. And for people listening, it'll be, it's the episode following this. Well, thank you so much, Scott. It's a wonderful discussion. Uh, as always, yeah, I really appreciate you. you opening up and about your, your personal experience and, um, I hope it's a benefit to anybody who listened this far. <laughs> yeah, me too. Thanks for all your wisdom, Scott. And I, and yeah, I, th I think we, 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 we ventured into a lot of areas. So I, I do hope it's helpful to, to some of the listeners out there. Thanks a lot.